0: the baptism of the lord each of the evangelists tell the story of jesus baptism matthew mark and luke uh, tell the story in explicit terms john the evangelist does not actually ever tell of jesus being baptized by john in the river jordan it's assumed uh, but not explicitly drawn out in the gospel John looks up on the hillside and sees Jesus pass by and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. But Jesus never actually goes into the water uh, with the baptizer. But Mark's gospel does, and in fact, begins with the baptism. There's no birth narrative in Mark as there is in Matthew and Luke. The good news, the gospel... Uh, begins with the baptism. The baptism figures in our own lives because it becomes the way by which each of us is enfolded into the household of God. When Jesus appeared to his disciples on the mountain in Galilee following his resurrection in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, "'Go into all the world and to baptize them.'" In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So that great commandment becomes the root by which we understand baptism to be the sacrament, the moment, the sacred moment in which each of us, either infant or at the age of consent or adulthood, is enfolded into this household of God, this movement of those who follow Jesus. Jesus. So from the Gospel of John, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Or, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. One who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let me pause here for a moment. John did not invent baptism. Baptism is an ancient Jewish rite and ritual that long predates John. And in fact, it's often postulated by the scholars that John the baptizer was the member of a, a sect, a subset of Judaism that lived at Qumran near the Jordan over the Dead Sea. Um, that were called the Essenes. And the Essenes baptized themselves several times every day. Not unlike in Islam, where one of the five pillars of Islam is to turn and pray to God five times a day, so too the Essenes at Qumran would baptize themselves five times a day to remind themselves of their relationship With God. So John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by John in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Let me pause there again. Now, this is no small undertaking, particularly to go out from Jerusalem down to the Jordan. It's a descent of several thousand feet. Jerusalem is on a high limestone promontory, one of the high points in the topography of Judea. And the Jordan is hundreds of feet below sea level. So to go out to the River Jordan is no small undertaking. It's a remarkably arduous trip. The zigzag trip down the mountainside, down into the depth of the heat below the sea level. And there they go, because they have this deep-felt need to return to their rightful relationship with God. John cries, repent, which means turn around. Metanoia in the Greek To reorient your life. To recalibrate your direction. To return to your right relationship with God. Not some kind of self-abnegation or flagellation. That's not the biblical meaning of repentance. Repentance means to restore the proper relationship between yourself and your creator. Redeemer, sustainer, lover of your life. So they come out, confessing their sins. That is to say, to call to their minds those things which have separated them from God. That's what sin is. Those things which separate us from God. And the only way to heal or address a problem is to name, to recognize, to delineate a problem. So confessing one's sins Is not a way of somehow beating yourself up emotionally, but rather to come to terms with what is so that you may work on what you would want to be, what God would want you to be, to move in that new direction in which God is calling you. Verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. John is a character. It's nothing halfway with John. He lives in the desert. He has a camel's, not a camel hair jacket. No, a camel's hide in a leather belt and he eats bugs and honey. And he proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you. With the Holy Spirit. This is remarkable for any number of reasons, it seems to me, particularly in our own day and age, when a public figure does not claim absolute authority to oneself, but it says, Someone's coming after me who is of more authority than I have. He is the forerunner of Jesus. And now in verse nine. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Let me pause here again. Nazareth of Galilee is like saying he came from a little town in a holler in the backwoods of West Virginia. He comes from a place that nobody knows or recognizes. Have you read Hillbilly Elegy? That great Memoir of what it's like to grow up beyond the margins of society. That's where Jesus is from. He comes from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now listen. And just as he was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens torn apart, and the spirit descending like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased." Amen. So here ends our gospel lesson for today. But of course, verse 12 says the Spirit immediately drove him into the desert for a time of testing, of clarification, of coming in his own mind to a a deeper understanding of what this might mean. You are my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. What does that mean? What will I do? Who am I? What shall I do in my life? You are my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And this is the rite, the sacrament, that Jesus instructs us to undertake in creating, recreating, paying forward, and establishing in eternity the household of God, the church, the body of Christ, to baptize. And in that baptism, to remember that just as Jesus is the beloved of God, so too are uh, you. I think we make a big mistake by focusing in our reflection and prayer about this story, this seminal moment in the life of Jesus. Jesus of thinking that it's really powerful for Jesus, but really not so much for us. Jesus is over here, up here, far beyond and greater than we might ever be, and we're just these little beings over here, and so our baptism can't ever really mean all that very much. And Jesus may be beloved, but eh, I'm not so sure about myself. I'm not really clear about how God feels about me because of how I've been made to feel about myself and how I've been portrayed in my life, the self-reflection that I have developed by looking at the way people look at me and finding myself smaller and whittled down and dehumanized. No! 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 This narrative of the baptism of Jesus is the absolute and utter rebuttal of that misguided thinking, and I would even say heretical theology, that you are accursed with original sin. You are originally blessed by God. God loves you. Jesus doesn't come because God is mad at you and wants to scold you and belittle you and dehumanize you. Jesus comes because God loves you wants to lift you up, wants to celebrate you, wants to have you know, as God knows, that you are God's beloved child. I am God's beloved child. We are all God's beloved children. We are each known, created, known, loved, sustained, forgiven. We all make mistakes, heaven forsake. Of course we all make mistakes. No, it's not saying that anybody's perfect. None of us are perfect. But that doesn't mean that we are unloved. In fact, when we make mistakes, when we sin, God loves us back into a relationship with God. So in days like this, when so much seems to be wrong with our world, and the problems seem so large, and beyond any kind of effective remedial effort that we might make to set things right, to build a new future, I love the name Connect, congregations organized for a new Connecticut. Not just Better, a new Connecticut, more firmly, deeply resolved in fulfilling the biblical vision of justice and of peace. That's new. That's new. The greatest mistake that someone might make is that thinking, because what I can do is so little, I will do nothing. The biggest mistake that we can make is in thinking, well, I'm not Jesus, so why bother? The biggest mistake we can make is in thinking that, well, I can't transform society. I can't make it all better. It will never happen in my lifetime, and therefore... I will do nothing. The sages of the Middle Ages, the rabbis, said that it is not for us to complete the work, that is to say, tikkun olam, the repair of the world. It is not for us to complete the work of repairing the world, tikkun olam, but neither are we free to desist from it. I want you to take this home today. You are the beloved of God, as was Jesus, as are all of those known and loved by God. You are beloved, which gives you a wonderfully, powerfully liberating relationship in the security that you are the object of God's desire That is what salvation really means, my friend, to live in the conscious understanding that you are beloved of God. That's what salvation is. It's not a matter of whether you go to heaven or hell, which are states of consciousness, not places to which we're consigned. To be saved, to be baptized, to hear the words, you are my son, my daughter, my child, my beloved, I am well pleased with you, gives you that liberation of living in the security of that relationship. And then comes the attendant responsibility to act on that relationship and to live out that relationship as Jesus did, to have the courage to stand in the public square and to speak and to act for God's desire for all humanity. Not to stand by as the evil forces run amok in our world and the systems of injustice and oppression rear their ugly heads and grind ever more people into the dust of history. Living in that loving relationship with God makes it incumbent upon us to stand and to speak and to act foursquare for God's justice and for God's peace. For every individual who is excluded from the goodness of life. For every person and peoples and communities who are dehumanized by the ravages of racism and economic exploitation are the beloved children of God your sisters and brothers, my sisters and brothers. And knowing that we are beloved of God, we cannot, we must not, we will not abandon them to the forces of evil that are arrayed against the designs and the desire of the Almighty. People ask, I would just love to see the hand of God at work in the world. I agree. But I also know that every time I've seen the hand of God at work in the world, it's at the end of somebody's arm. Your arm, my arm, an extension of my heart and your heart. As we affirm our baptism this day, let us remember that we are the beloved children of God and therefore we are the valiant ones, the disciples who stand to follow Jesus into the depths of human depravity and even into the shadow of death. And know that thou art with us, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort, encourage, and empower us. We will see each other through. We will work together for the establishment of God's reign on earth. For we are, you are the beloved child of God. Amen.